We turn again this Sunday to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a great, great chapter in the Bible. That's what we're nibbling on this August. A stirring chapter, but also an enigmatic and puzzling chapter. Keep it open in front of you if you would. Christians have long recognized that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves nor clear unto all. That's how they put it in the Middle English. How true that is in regards to 2 Corinthians 4. We can read these words, the words that Julia just read aloud for us, but their meaning is not necessarily self-evident. And so a bit of work is required, at least if we want to get our minds around what St. Paul is talking about here. What is Paul saying? What is God telling to us? Something about Christian, typical Christian life, I think. Yet something about Christian life that we would rather scoot past sometimes if we can. Namely, that to be a follower of Christ in this world is to expect sacrifice and setback and suffering. It's to be ready to advance His kingdom from a place of weakness and vulnerability. This is what's going to be involved in carrying Jesus' name to other people for the sake of their present and ultimate well-being. That's what Paul is saying here. But he's saying more than that, because we're also going to see that within and past those difficulties... There are victories and future glory. We don't want to miss that either. That was the way of Christ, and that's the way that His church should be as well. Now, as we ponder this, we need to attend to at least three things. Number one, we need to walk in Paul's shoes. Number two, we need to get used to wearing his shoes. And number three, we need to find out how it's possible to stay in those shoes. Okay, so a lot about shoes today. Walking in Paul's shoes. Before we can contemplate what this text means for me and you, we need to understand what it meant in Paul's own life situation. It's very important. 2 Corinthians is a letter written to a a, a planted church from a church planner. That's Paul. And needless to say, this letter is not a typical check-in letter or a formality letter. It's actually a letter that's written in response to confusions and to tensions and to animosities. Let's turn to the backstory briefly, what was going on in this situation in Paul's life and ministry. In about 50 AD, Paul moved to Corinth to preach the gospel of Christ to the Corinthians, and he stayed there for about a year and a half, and as a result, a little church birthed. But his work there was not easy. There are a few things we need to know about it. We need to know something about the people, and we need to know something about the place, the people and the place. I want you to notice in what I'm about to say that the issues that Paul discovered are live issues in our own context and world. So think about that as we go through it. Let's start with the people. The original Corinthian church, as the commentators suggest, was probably demographically diverse. Working class people, urban poor artisans, maybe even some slaves, but also urban elites. And that latter group was probably a bit socially pretentious. They were eager to move up the social ladder. Now, the commentators suggested that that group of urban elites, they probably had a dominant influence on this church because they're the ones who provided the houses for the meetings, and they played hosts, and they sponsored uh, meals and other events. Now, the urban elites in Corinth, they had a certain way of operating, and it's a way of operating that should result in amplified status for them. In the Greco-Roman world, that's the world in which Paul was ministering, the world in which Jesus lived, status and prestige, socially and economically, 
were attained through these things called client-patron relationships or patron-client relationships. Some of you may have heard of that. A patron-client relationship centered on building a connection with people above you and below you. And these connections had mutual obligations. So the patron was the one who was the benefactor. And then the client was supposed to render certain services to the patron. It was all about deference and duty. This was the backbone of the Greco-Roman economy. Caesar Augustus, the emperor, was the great patron. These types of relationships were at the heart of Roman social stratification, the big pyramid. So after uh, coming to, to, uh, to Corinth, Paul discovered that at some of the Corinthians there that he was ministering to, they wanted to carry those patron-client customs right into the church. It was common in Corinth for patrons to identify traveling philosophers. And Paul would have looked like a traveling philosopher from a distance. And so some of these people, it seems, they wanted to plug him into that system as a client. They wanted to become his benefactor. Now, patron-client relationships, as you can all guess, don't exactly put people on equal footing. Okay? They would have brought social stratification right into the church, right into the Christian community. And so therefore, it should come as no surprise that Paul refuses to play that game. If anything, he wants to subvert it. So he refuses to take material aid from some of those wealthier Christians in that community. That's why he works as a tent maker and supports himself. He doesn't want to end up as anyone's client. And he also identifies more readily with the lower orders of the church. That would have raised some eyebrows because he was the leader after all. It's not hard to imagine that some tension resulted from this situation. People don't like to feel snubbed. They don't like to feel that their influence, especially if they're used to having influence, is being relativized. But the church is called to be a community of contrast. Christians don't relate to one another as patrons and clients. We relate to each other as friends. In the Roman world, there's another word, amicus, for friendship. That was a very special term. It was only used for relationships between two equal people. Friendship. People of equal status and equal standing. For Paul, that is the norm of how Christians relate to each other as friends. So that's a little bit about the people. Let's talk about the place. Mark Twain once said this, Eloquence is the essential thing in speech, not information. The Corinthians could not have agreed more. They had a seasoned taste for speech that was sweet and grandiose. They wanted things to be well put. This city of Corinth, it seems, was always receiving and hosting traveling philosophers, and every one of them had the gift of the gab. Communication style trumped content. That was the Norman Corinth. The messenger was more important than the message. I imagine Corinth at this time to be a bit like a scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian. I mean, you might know about it. There's a city square, I think it's Jerusalem or some city in Palestine, and it's filled with all these traveling prophets, and they all stand up on a, a pillar, and they're each trying to use sensational speech and dramatics to win people to their point of view. One of them, I remember, is talking about a nine-blade sword that's going to be used to judge the wicked. And this is what he says. He says, the sword is nine-bladed, not two, not seven, not five, but nine-bladed. A lot of talking, but he's not really saying anything. A lot of fluff. That was Corinth. People wanted things to look and sound good. And the new Christians probably wanted their apostle to compete in that market. Paul, therefore, was a disappointment. 
His rhetorical manner, it seems, was rather unimpressive. He was more concerned with content than with form. He was no conjurer of cheap tricks. Here's my Gandalf reference for the sermon. In Corinth, this meant that Paul was seen as weak and inept. They wanted an apostle who would impress their friends, and Paul was a party pooper. Okay, so we've got these observations about people in place, and we can see in light of that that it was inevitable that Paul was going to step on some toes. He was going to make some trouble for himself. One scholar sums it up like this. Listen carefully. Paul's rejection of patronage would have been a slap in the face, and his deliberate refusal to exercise the techniques of the rhetorician would have been a source of serious criticism. Why on earth would Paul operate that way? It seems counterproductive. Why not just give the people a bone? Why did Paul do that? Verse 7 tells us. Verse 7. Have a look. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul's chief and perennial concern is to point to Christ. He is the servant of Christ. His life and ministry exist to glorify and irradiate Jesus Christ. Just like John the Baptist, Paul says, I must decrease that he might increase. So Paul sees himself, first and foremost, as a vessel or as a jar. That's the word he uses in this verse. A jar filled with the light of Christ. Now, if you buy jam at the store, jelly or jam, you don't marvel at the glass container. You open it, you taste it, you savor the jam. Unless, of course, you buy it at a hipster store, and then they have a really nice handcrafted glass container. Then you focus on the container and not the jam. But that's atypical. Normally, it's the jam that's important. The point here is that nothing must interfere with Paul's singular goal to introduce Jesus Christ to the world. Nothing must supplant Christ or steal Christ's light. Not other people and not Paul himself. Let me explain that. If Paul had entered into those patron-client relationships, at least two big problems would have resulted. Number one, he would have been perpetuating a system of social stratification and human power dynamics that should not exist in the church. The church is a place where we all have one patron, and his name is God. Before him, we're all on equal footing. The way of Jesus subverts worldly power. Go read Matthew 20. And furthermore, if Paul had gotten into all that, he probably would have gotten ensnared. He would have become a client to some of these elites, and then he would have been in their debt. And his ministry would have found legitimization in their approval and in their support. He would have become a marionette, and they would have held the strings. And so acquiescing to this Corinthian patron-client arrangement was out of the question. It would have sucked the integrity right out of Paul's ministry. Do you see this? Listen carefully. I love this statement from Leslie Newbegin. When the church tries to embody the rule of God in the forms of earthly power, like patron-client relationships, it may achieve that power, but it is no longer a sign of the kingdom. That's the thought in Paul's mind. Now, in addition, if Paul had humored that Corinthian fondness for sweet speech and fine rhetoric, he also would have encountered a problem, taking the spotlight off of Christ and too much onto himself, which is what everyone in Corinth wanted to do anyway. And so Paul says, no thank you to that. That's what he's getting at earlier in chapter 4, verse 2, and he says, we have renounced cunning. We refuse to tamper with God's word. We speak the truth plainly. Paul refuses to play the pandering politician. 
he would rather be dismissed as inept and weak because the messenger cannot outshine the message. Paul's not selling himself. He's pointing to Christ. And that message has to be proclaimed in a certain way. It cannot always accommodate cultural sensibilities. Sometimes, in fact, it can only undermine them. Paul is very perceptive about this. Are we? That's a big question for us. Are we that perceptive? All this is just a regular part of Christian mission. But sometimes it's going to make things a little bit uncomfortable because sometimes things just don't mix. A cold windshield cannot handle hot water. It shatters. I learned that with a casserole pan two weeks ago. Okay, now we've gotten into Paul's shoes a bit. I want to begin to segue into reflecting on what all this means for me and for you. We've got to get used to wearing Paul's shoes because according to this passage, we should. We should get used to wearing these shoes. Look with me now at verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And they said Paul wasn't good with his words. I beg to differ. What we have here is Paul's own vivid account of the trials and afflictions of bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians. This is how he describes it. I want to focus firstly on the words of deprivation in this passage. About 50% of these words pertain to struggle and difficulty and hardship. Now, based on what we've just learned, we have a sense of why that was happening. We have a sense of what was causing some of these hardships. I'm going to pause here and make an analogy just to help you understand a bit more. You all know David Suzuki, right, our local environmental guru. David Suzuki has come under a bit of flack and fire lately for seeming a little bit inconsistent, a little bit hypocritical, however you want to put it. He preaches against capitalism, but he takes $30,000 speaking fee from a university in Quebec. And he tells us that we all need to reduce our carbon footprint while he lives in a house that's not very energy efficient and apparently makes a large carbon footprint. And he flies in a private jet that burns the gas. That's why he's come under flack. That's what Paul wants to avoid. He wants to avoid being in that type of situation. So to recap, Paul is committed to integrity and consistency, but integrity to the gospel of Christ sometimes comes at a cost. That's what Paul's describing here in verses 8 through 10. That's why he's perplexed, because the people don't care half as much about what he's saying as how he's saying it. They're more interested in the lampstand than in the light. That's why he feels afflicted and persecuted. These Greek words here in verse 9 are very telling. Persecuted is a word that means hounded and hunted, being at the receiving end of a shotgun or a rifle. And stepping on the toes of some of those elites, Paul invited hostility and resentment. That's why he endures being struck down, being bullied and laid low, discredited, having people speak against him. That's what the words at the end of verse 9 tell us. Again, all of this because he's committed to preaching the gospel of Christ with integrity and with consistency. Not just with words, but also with his behavior, with his way of life, the way he does relationships. And so he simply cannot accommodate every Corinthian preference and convention. If he did that, he would be a walking contradiction. This is why Paul speaks of living with death, that strange phrase that permeates this passage, living with death. 
Look at verses 10 and 12. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So death is at work in us and life in you. For Paul, Christian ministry is, in some sense, a death-filled enterprise. Carrying the death of Jesus is shorthand for all those afflictions and setbacks and weaknesses that he experiences. And that death-filled endeavor, this is what it includes. The death to human approval. The death of certain types of credibility, of prestige, of comfort. The death to worldly status. The death to material gain. And certainly the death to feeling in control. Paul dispenses with these types of things. Why? So that other people might come to know and love and live in Jesus Christ. That is the driving force of his life. Paul is incredibly sensitive to the needs of other people. But not sensitive to in the way that we often are. We think sensitivity to others' needs means just telling them what they want to hear or avoid telling them anything that might ruffle their feathers. That's not Paul's sensitivity. Paul's sensitivity is telling people what we all need to hear, what we all need to know, which is the love, the forgiveness, and the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, this is normal Christian life. Paul's shoes are going to be your shoes and my shoes. To be a Christian is to carry the death of Christ for the sake of others, and therefore to be a Christian is, in this world, to be acquainted with sacrifice and loss and weakness and affliction and being hounded and so forth and so on. Let me do a little bit of autobio here. Talk to you about some of the difficulties that have resulted from my sometimes feeble efforts to be true and faithful to Christ the way Paul is, with my life, my words, my witness. I have lost some close friends on account of being a Christian. It's not what I wanted, it's not what I sought, but it's what happened. One close friend lost because following Christ made me too religious. This highly cherished friendship, one of the most important from my college days, in fact, dissipated. See, what happened was, as a Christian, I began to acknowledge my weaknesses and my vulnerabilities and my insecurities, began to acknowledge those for the first time to myself and out loud. I had never done that before, and I think it was just too difficult for this friend to be around that because poverty of spirit, which is what all that is, can be very off-putting, especially to upwardly mobile middle-class types. I know because that was me. I've also, also suffered ridicule. Remember a reunion with college friends several years back? They knew me before, and even though I still socialized with them, they saw a change, and it left them kind of confounded, and, and I got harassed at the end of the night by a few of them. They said, what the cuff happened to you, man? I didn't know what that word meant, but <laughs> I think that's probably what Paul, some of Paul's former Pharisee friends said to him after the road to Damascus. What the cuff happened to you, man? As a pastor... I've had to deny myself things that I want, good things, but things to deny for the sake of others coming to know Christ. Sometimes those sacrifices have been heavy, and they will no doubt be heavier in the future, but no heavier than sacrifices that other people made so that I might know Christ. It's not always been easy, and my attitude has not always been the best, but I've done it because there are things and people in this life that matter more than my dreams and my pleasure. I've given up lucrative work opportunities to take this calling, and I've been called a fool for doing that. I may good and well have to sacrifice the prospect of a stable home place 
Because sometimes God says, now here, now there. And my future wife, and if we have kids, they'll have to endure that as well. I've given up the ease of a nine to five, after which I can just turn off from work. That's not on the pastor's job description. But more than that, there are the inner burdens, the inner afflictions and perplexities that are par for the course in the pastoral work. There's a sculpture at Regent College that captures the pastoral vocation so well and all the difficulties with it. This experience has involved watching people run to Christ and then run away from Him. And that's very hard on relationships. It's put me in moments where people have accused me of being against them or their enemy or mean because I was attempting in my own imperfect way to tell them something they desperately needed to hear about themselves, something I had to tell them if I was going to bring the gospel to them in integrity. Seeing people yearn for wholeness and talk about it while at the same time refusing to pursue it in those very concrete ways that Jesus says we should if we want to be whole. And then there's the perceived slowness of my own sanctification. Cindy knows about this. Feeling unfit to be a pastor. Christ is at work in me, but it doesn't always seem like it. Impatience, anger, resentment, envy, and the list goes on. Those are all part of the kit and caboodle in my life. All of this stuff, it's given me restless nights. It's given me stress and sorrow and bewilderment and feeling cut down at moments, just like Paul. But I haven't yet mentioned the things unseen, spiritual warfare. It always comes before preaching. Tormented sleep, bad dreams, being assailed with a sense of inadequacy. It's as if I have to fight my way up to this pulpit, and by the time I get here, I often feel incredibly feeble and incompetent and unworthy. Those of you who pray for me before I preach know about that. I know what it's like to stroll in Paul's shoes. But you should too, however. Because these shoes, they're not just for ministers and for pastors, they're for every Christian. Listen to one commentator. What Paul writes will apply to all Christians in a world environment which is generally unsympathetic to the message of God through Jesus Christ. God's glorification in, your, in the witness to Jesus Christ, it's not just the prerogative of your pastors. It's a priority for every Christian. And so we should all expect some of the experiences that Paul describes here. Part of the permanent pattern of Christian life, a pattern which will touch your lives, a pattern which will include being hard-pressed at times and subject to prejudices and afflicted, all because of your fidelity to Jesus Christ, at least for those who are genuinely committed to Christ and His kingdom. How might that play out in your lives? Let me do a little bit of predictive biography here based on things that I've picked up over the years. We can think of the Christian employee who's denied promotion or even dismissed because he's a godly person and won't take shortcuts and won't go along with dubious practices at the office. We can think of the Christian doctor who's denied regular advancement in her field or a fitting place in the structures of her profession because she gave up 10 years to go serve in an unserved, obscure area. We can think of a flight attendant or nurse who gets dismissed for wearing an inconspicuous cross on a plain necklace. We can think of the Christian graduate student who is denied full funding in their course of study because the department deems them to suffer from an insufferable bias. And this tendency runs right to the top. I was just thinking the other day about the trouble that Francis Collins encountered when he was nominated by President Barack Obama 
to head up the National Institute of Mental Health. That's the highest ranking scientist in the US. Despite that Collins had an impeccable CV, his nomination was not greeted by, with cheers by everybody. There were concerns because he's a public and well-known Christian. One of his colleagues at Harvard questioned the appointment on the grounds that Collins was an advocate of profoundly unscientific beliefs. And another biologist said this, I don't want an American science to be represented by a clown. That's tough stuff. And because it's tough stuff, we can be tempted to turn it down, to slip into being a Christian in a personal and private sense, to let our faith be purely interior and as a result, risk-free. And so we can forget what Martin Luther King Jr. knew so well that the ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand in times of challenge and controversy. Now, what happens when we forget that? Or when fear takes us in its grips? I'll tell you what happens. We evade. We become apathetic and blasé, and we put the light of Christ under a basket. For many of us, I dare to say, the real-time struggle of Christian life is not against afflictions and hardships or being struck down on account of being a Christian. The real battle is against the tendency to want to avoid all of that by minimizing our association with Christ, by doing anonymous Christianity. We want to check out, we want to bypass everything that Paul's experienced here. We don't want to replicate the pattern of Christ's redemptive ministry, which is one that endured being misunderstood and afflicted and struck down in order to change us and to change this world. We don't want to do that. We don't want to carry his dying so that others might have life. But that's what's involved with being saved by God. It's how you got saved and it's how I got saved. And it's how other people will get saved too. It's a way of life that carries death as we read in verse 15, so that the grace of God may extend to more and more and more and more people. So instead of trying to minimize it or avoid it, I think we do better to think about how to persevere in it. Recollect again verses 8 through 10. While there are words of difficulty and obstacle here, there are other words too. There are words of enduring, of not being undone. You see, despite all that Paul encountered, he was not crushed. He was not forsaken. He was not destroyed. What's Paul's secret? How do we stay in his shoes? Because we're always tempted to take him off. What keeps us true to the way of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was afflicted and struck down for your sake and for mine? That's the big question. The answer is right there in verses 13 and 14. Look with me. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, so also we believe, and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. Two things we need to see here in closing. We need to hang on. We need to hang on to Christ, and we need to hang on to each other. If you want to stay in the shoes, pay attention, please. We need to hang on to Christ. And according to the Bible, to be a Christian is not just to love and to trust Christ, it's also to be connected to Him. It's to be held by Him and to hang on to Him. That's what being a Christian is all about. And when that happens, says the New Testament, Christ's life becomes your life and my life. 
And that's why we each in our own way will experience some of the afflictions and suffering that were part of his life, just like Paul. But sharing in his life is more than that. It's no less than that, but it's more than that. It's not just about sharing in his difficulties. It's also about sharing in his victory. In other words, Jesus' present reality, resurrected in a state of glory, that is our destiny. That is our destiny. His victory over death, that is our future. A bright and shining future in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the key to not losing heart. What does all that mean? Listen up here, please. It means that whatever we lose on account of Christ, and on account of being his witnesses, whatever we sacrifice, whatever inflictions we endure, we will gain them back exponentially. That is the promise of Jesus to me and you in Matthew chapter 19. You will be your best self. Not now, but later. I'm sorry, Joel Osteen. There is glory. There is resurrection awaiting those who hang on to Christ. You know what? We can scarcely imagine it. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that those who share in his sufferings will also share in his consolation. That is God's word for you right now. Do you see this? Now, I am well aware that the claim that I have just made, that the claim that the Bible has just made, is a point of contention and doubt for many of us. But in our context where we've convinced ourselves that the natural world, that the here and now is all there is, I think it's healthy to doubt some of our doubts. Who says the world is just like that? Who says? Who benefits from that? Is it you? Do you really benefit from that? That this world is all there is here and now? Maybe we should doubt some of those doubts. Maybe we should check them. We should interrogate them. Maybe they're not as sound as we've been led to believe. I would encourage you to do that if they're in your mind. And you better believe they've been, been in my mind at times. To the degree that you trust Jesus and you share in his life, you will share in his glory and you will find the spiritual resources to be afflicted but not crushed, to be struck down but not destroyed. You can and you will. People have and people do right now in this world. Our present life is just a prelude to true life. And you know what? Whatever we endure now, and this is hard to get our minds around, but whatever we endure now, it won't matter so much then. But what will matter, what will matter is that his kingdom is all the more bustling with people because we let God use our life even through temporary affliction and hardship so that other people might come to know and love and live with Christ. That will matter. That will matter. People in Vancouver. And that's why Christian hope has everything to do with how we live here and now. Most of us want to be decent people, concerned people, compassionate people, people who are good to our neighbors. Jesus Christ makes that possible. Christian hope makes that possible. Pray for that hope because Jesus gives it freely. And the last thing, we need to hang on to Christ, but we also need to hang on to each other. That's crucial too. Benjamin Franklin, the uh, American revolutionaries, once told his seditious comrades in the Revolutionary War that either we all hang together or we all hang separately. The same is true for us. That is why God has given us one another for this life called Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this, If one member suffers, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we are all honored together. So it's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and you, and you and you, and you and you. 
to be baptized into Christ is to come into this thing called the church and to let God knit our lives together. And one of the greatest joys of being chosen by God is to discover that other people are chosen too. Other people are chosen too. And so in a very practical way, this is where we get concrete support for those moments in our lives that line up with verses 8 through 10. We struggle, we live with weakness, but we do it in community. And that means that we can lend and borrow love and hope and faith as we all have need. We may not be supremely happy in this life. We may give that up so that other people can come to know Jesus. But you know what? We can be reasonably happy. And more than that, we can find joy under fire and we can find astounding love and rest even in affliction and weakness. Community. Use it. Embrace it. Where two or three gather together in Jesus' name, there also he shall be. This is the gospel. It will bring about difficulty, but it will also bring about beauty, not just for us, but for other people too. So do not be afraid. We carry the light of Christ, and it is a light which one day will undo all darkness.